Welcome to the Reimagining Faith podcast with the Pastors Jackson. This is a podcast for seekers, dreamers, and fellow sojourners who are trying to figure out what it means to be followers of Jesus in the 21st century. We are also joined today by our dog, Juliet, who is very happy to be here. And you may or may not hear a jangly collar while we record. We're going to find out. It's going to be great. <laughs> hey, guys. <laughs> So she happy talks to be now, here. Too. Wow. She's a, she's a very smart dog. Extremely smart dog. Yes, I am. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> so, um, we wanted to do a uh, kind of special two-part episode in which we talk a little bit about who we are as people, as pastors, as Christians, as humans, and um, share a little bit of our own personal faith journeys with you so that you can get to know us a little bit better. I was going to say, so you can figure out whether or not you can trust us, but, um, you, you may. That's debatable. (laughs) Week to week. Week to week. Day to day. Day to day. What does that mean? We're great humans. And we're going to start with Zach first. (laughs) Yes, we are. We will start with me first um, because I came up with the idea. And so I need to be the guinea pig. Amen. So to make sure that we're not just just kind of rambling about ourselves, uh, we have come up with five questions. And seven. We, se- seven questions. Seven questions. We are nothing if not overachievers. <laughs> and so we're going to answer the same five to seven questions. Um today and that Nicole's going to answer next week. So what what are those questions? Okay. Well, Zach Jackson. I'm wondering what is the religion of your youth? What uh what faith did you inherit? You want to tell us the rest of the questions too so uh folks know where we're going? Oh, you want me to read them all? I want you to read them all. Okay. In a row. So the first question is, what religion did you inherit? Uh, Number two, how long was that inherited faith something that you thought was yours? And when did that change, if it changed? Uh, Number three, what stopped working? And number four, similar, uh, what do you still hold on to? Number five, uh, what brought you to the United Church of Christ? Number six, how would you describe your faith now? And number seven, why pastor a new church? Aren't there enough? (laughs) We've gotten that question a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I will keep an eye on the questions uh, to keep us on track. And mm-hmm. I will ask you the questions and not have to be um, transparent at all. Oh, fun. Not until next week. Not until next week. Feel free to interrupt me, by the way. Ask me some questions or um, tell me when I'm intentionally misrepresenting myself. Because we'll I do. know you'll keep me honest. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that's what um, love is for. That's what love is for. To help you through it. Yes. And that will be, friends, just the first Amy Grant reference today. We love See Amy See if you Grant. can catch all 12 Amy Grant references by the end of this podcast. <laughs> all right. I'm just going to say them all in a row because I can't keep that up. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> so, Zach, what is the religion that you inherited? What uh, faith were you born into? <sighs> So I was born into a uh, super religious family. I was going to try to work in something about wearing a lot of hats because that's an Amy Grant song, but I'm just going to leave that behind. <laughs> We're done with oh with uh, Ms. Grant at this point. Um, Much less than 12. So my family, um, super, super spiritual. Um, there are fa- there are 
pastors back in the Jackson line for, I don't know, as far as anyone knows. My uh, my dad was the worship leader at the church and one of the elders um, at both of the churches that we attended when I was very young, the church plant that we were a part of, as well as the more established church that I grew up in. Um, my uncle is a pastor. My grandfather was a pastor. And two of my great-grandfathers were pastors. And the stories that I've been told about our ancestors on the Peterson side that go back into Sweden— um, that there was some pastors there as well, though folks can't tell me exactly who was. Um, I grew up in and around churches all the time. I went to Christian preschool up until Christian seminary. I've never <laughs> been to a non-Christian school in my life. Summers were spent vacation Bible school. Uh, we went to church early on Sundays to set up. We stayed late because my parents talked to people. We went midweek. Sometimes I'd go for worship team practice. As I grew older, we went to a youth group. I was a youth group leader. So, like, the church is a pretty big deal. Um, enough that I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want it to be hmm. anymore. Um, what um, what religious traditions oh, were those churches? Yeah, that's a good question. So. The uh, the church that I uh, primarily grew up in was an American Baptist church, and um, the American Baptist denomination is a congregational denomination, which means that every individual church kind of has autonomy to believe and do what they want within reason. Um, the Baptists do have some rules about being a Baptist. You know, you can't be an American Baptist and also an atheist. Um Pretty important. Yeah, um, that's in there. But I didn't really know a lot of other American Baptist churches, and I just kind of assumed that ours was, ours was normative, which apparently it's not. Mm. Um, our church is somewhat of an outlier in in the larger American Baptist churches in the area. Um, I say that because our church didn't have um, uh, women were not allowed to teach as long as there were men present in, in the space. Um, they could not hold positions of pastoral leadership. Um, I mean, they could unofficially do the work of a, an associate pastor, just as long as you never call them an associate pastor. Um, but that's a little foreshadowing into how I got myself in trouble. Um, we were pretty conservative in a lot of theological ways. I remember one time my pastor saying that the only reason you would have to not believe in a literal seven-day creation is that if you believe that God wasn't able to do it. Hmm. Um, we were very conservative and activists as well. Um, our church was had a constant presence at the local Planned Parenthood, which hmm. I was raised to call an abortion mill which I didn't realize at the time is a pejorative <laughs> yeah. sense. I just thought that's what they were called. Mm. Um, turns out they're not. Um, it's a women's health clinic. <laughs> they do lots and lots of good things. Yes, and mill is not quite the, the word you want to use for that. No. Um, but I grew Because up women aren't dogs, but or, whatever. Or grain. Or grain, yeah. Yeah, but I grew up in this sort of evangelical subculture of the 90s where we had our own version of everything and we never had to be exposed to anything worldly. Oh, I remember there's a Christian bookstore that had signs and all of their, their CDs. And it would be like, if you like Blink-182, you'll like Reliant K. You know, it was always, uh, here's the, the secular thing and here's the Christian equivalent. We've got our own book series and movie series and TV show series and, and, and music and uh, fashion. We were just talking yesterday that I never had a No Fear t-shirt like that all the cool kids had, <laughs> but I had one that looked just like one, but it said Real Fear. And then it had a Bible verse about hell on it. That's sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Very sweet. It, sweet, yes, definitely. Super sweet. Lots of sweetness. <clears throat> um, and the, the school that I went to was an Assemblies of God, which is a Pentecostal, um, super Pentecostal. So we're talking like 
Um, three hour worship services, uh, being slain in the spirit, people falling on the floor, speaking in tongues, healing services, miracles, the tons and tons and tons of evangelism, a lot of focus on hell and salvation from hell. And if you are a good Christian, you'll do everything you can to stop other people from going to hell. Right. This is a big focus is, is hell. They had a hell house every year on Halloween. That a hell was house. a hell house because Halloween is a you know pagan holiday, uh, and we don't want to celebrate evil. Which, on a side note, and I'll this is a hill that I'm willing to fight and die on. Every Christian holiday that we have, Christmas, Easter, all all of the big ones, are pagan holidays the Christians stole or co-opted. Christians are really good at taking other people's things and adding Jesus to them. <laughs> Those were all pagan holidays that we took. Halloween is the one Christian holiday that the pagans took. That was ours first. We would set up skeletons and scary bad things as a way of mocking death and mocking evil. And <clears throat> children would go around dressed like ghouls and scary things and ask for treats at the doors as a way of mocking the powers of evil because it was the day before All Saints Day when we celebrated the resurrected Christ and all of those people who followed. Hmm. I wish I had had that version um, growing up. We we celebrated Halloween and I love Halloween, um, but <clears throat> I was not allowed to be anything evil um, because we don't even pretend that. But I think this idea of like mocking evil like wearing a devil costume is like saying, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Look how harmless it is. There's a child mm -hmm. dressed up as the devil. I did dress up as a witch one Halloween and had pink hair and it was really, really great. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, this is my, my crusade now is we're going to reclaim Halloween for the church. All right. So they can have... Go back to, what was this called? The special haunted hell or something that you did at your church? Haunted hell is so much better. Than <laughs> what was it called? And I like haunted hell because the Bible teaches that hell is not haunted because hell is empty. Um, but that is, that's for when we talk about Revelation someday. Okay. But anyway, uh, the hell house. Hell house. Oh, yeah, we also had an Easter play, and in that Easter play, there was a hell scene after Jesus dies on the cross and sings a solo, and then everything goes black, and they've got this hell scene where there's it's it's blackness and dark, and there's like uh, flames in the background, and there's the devil, and the devil is this this person in a black coat, and all you can see are red glowing eyes and this creepy black coat, and there's demons that drag people down the aisle screaming and crying that they want one more chance. Give me one more chance. I swear I'll be better this time. And the demons go, ha, 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 you had your chance. <laughs> and there was like somebody down there who smoked a marijuana cigarette that what? was laced with strychnine and died in their Strychnine? Yeah. What is strychnine? It's poison. Okay. Because we were afraid in those days of people poisoning joints, I guess. And that mm. was just the best they could come up with about how a person would die in sin. And, uh, <laughs> and then Jesus comes down there into hell in the bright light and has a fist fight with the devil and then steals the glow sticks from the devil. And it's like, he's got the keys. Jesus is the victor. And, uh, then they played the he's alive sound and Jesus took all of the people up, the good people who had been locked down there in, um, because he hadn't saved anyone yet. Um, so, huh. yeah. So this is probably the only example of a time where my school gave really bad doctrine and somebody corrected it for me. Because my dad was like, he was mad on the way home. <laughs> Not in the portrayal of like a poor kid who smoked a joint and went to hell. But the fact that Jesus would have to go down and get into a fist fight with the devil because Jesus is Lord over heaven and hell and earth and all of that and should just be able to waltz in and grab it from his employee, as it were. <laughs> um, 
I mean, I have a problem now with the idea that Jesus went down there and that there were like people that were being tormented like Abraham and good faithful people in the past that were being tormented in hell or at least being held there in cages for thousands of years until Jesus came and set them free. I have so many problems with that theologically and biblically. That is not a thing that is in the Bible. Just going to put that out there. Right. For another time. For another time when we talk again about heaven and hell and um, why hell is empty. So. So I wonder, did that work for you? (laughs) No. Well, so here's the thing. That's the only time where some of their doctrines were corrected for me. Hmm. So I just assumed that everything I learned in this school was gospel, was legit. Because these adults that I trusted taught these things. And the church that I grew up in was a very seeker-sensitive church. That was a phrase we used in the late 90s that was like, that basically meant we're only going to ever teach very surface-level Christianity because that's what's most appealing to people. Hmm. And we're going to give you a sort of happy meal of Christianity and never let you get past that because we don't trust that the majority of people care about this thing. Hmm. essentially is what it is. And so I never learned a whole lot of like actual doctrine at my church. And so I never heard anything that contradicted what I heard at my school who taught doctrine. It was just bad doctrine. Hmm. And I remember very vividly um, my seventh grade Bible teacher telling us that every time you sinned, you gave up your salvation Hmm. because following the book of Romans, um, all who sin are... Um, hit me with the Romans road. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God for the wages of sin is death. And then, so we're all, we're all going to hell because of our sin. We're all born sinful. So therefore we're all going to hell because we're all sinful. But then anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord and asks for forgiveness will be forgiven of their sins. will find themselves in the, you know, fancy cloudy place up, up North. Mm. And so To them, that meant you could make it into heaven, get out of hell, but you had to ask for forgiveness for your sins. There was no kind of blanket forgiveness. Hmm. And so he said to us, if you got Billy Graham driving home from the most successful crusade of his life, he's just evangelized to 10 million people and we've got 5 million new converts to Christianity and he is singing praise songs on the way home. He gets cut off by an 18-wheeler, uses the Lord's name in vain and dies. He goes to hell because he died with sin and sin separates us from God. And this is just the way it is. Hmm. And so I heard that and what I heard was Salvation is about luck, (laughs) dying at exactly the right time. If you die with sin, you're going to hell. So either be lucky or never sin. And I remember hearing from a couple of people. I chose never sin. You joke, but I remember a, a chapel speaker who said that, who said since they were saved, he's never sinned. Dear God. And I mean, the other Christians in my circle really looked that way. They really looked like they never sinned and they would show up for church services and for chapel services and they would just sing praise and glory and they always had such joy and happiness to them. And I watched them with their joy and their happiness and their assurance and their rock solid faith and was like, all right, if that's what it looks like, I very clearly am not that. Hmm. Because I had a hard time staying a Christian at all, like not sinning. I mean, every single night I would, I would say a prayer before going to bed and I would ask for forgiveness for every one of the sins I remembered. Then I would ask a prayer of forgiveness for the sins that I forgot. And then I would ask a prayer of forgiveness for forgetting those sins, because that feels like something that should be a sin and of itself, not recognizing how bad a sin is. Right. And over like, I don't know, a couple of years of doing that, it just kind of occurred to me that I think I'm, I think I'm not cut out for this because a part of the doctrine that I was given, both 
in my church and in my school and in my home is that God has predestined us for salvation. Those of us who are among the elect, those of us who are in the church, who are God's people, were predestined for that. And if you believe that God has predestined some for salvation, then you also kind of have to acknowledge that God has predestined some for hell. Hmm. Paul makes a sort of argument about this in Galatians where he says that, what if God choosing to show his mercy and demonstrate his power should so choose some vessels for destruction and some for, uh, for honor? What is that to you? And they took that to mean that that's Depends true. Depends on which side you're on. Right. Now, <laughs> forget it. Putting aside the fact that Paul says, let's say hypothetically that God did this thing. He didn't say that God definitely did this thing. This is a rhetorical argument that Paul is using. Let's just set that aside for a second. This is what I heard, and this is what I internalized. And so I just kind of believed from probably, I don't know, 14, 15 years old that I was a person who was created to stoke the fires of hell, that the sort of person who was created so that God could show God's mercy to someone else. So when, when in your life did that, did, did these questions start arising for you? Were you like four? Were you like 13? When, when did you start like realizing that you were damned? Probably 14, 15. Okay. Um, there's not a lot going on during that time of real life. No, no, there's not a million hormones flowing through a young man's body that make it hard for him to stay monkishly pure. <laughs> no, it can be very easy for a person going through puberty to think that, especially in a very, very strict purity culture, that they themselves are somehow broken, wrong, hmm. twisted, sick, perverted, you know, for having totally natural thoughts. Hmm. But um, I spiritualized all of that. And, you know, looking back, I really wonder why I didn't just give up, why I didn't be like, well, if I'm going to hell, oh, well. But I still held on to this God that hated me for some reason. Hmm. And I kind of felt like I also could, just couldn't escape. I mean, it's my family. It's my church. It's my school. It's my friends. I literally have no one in my life who is not an evangelical Christian. Hmm. I've got no one. Like I maybe have some nominal Catholics in my family, but like <laughs> I got nothing and nothing else. And so when I, when I was in, like I was like 17, I preached a sermon because they asked me to for Youth Sunday. And I felt this like pool towards ministry and was like, no, no, ministry is for Christians. Um, <laughs> And I used to kind of pray to a God that I imagined couldn't hear me, that if there was somebody in the congregation who could do this Christian thing, who could be saved, that maybe God could work through me to do that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I fought this this call for, for a, a long time. I wanted to be a rocket scientist. And uh, it wasn't until my senior year, like two weeks before applications were due, that I was sitting in pre-calculus and I just, I just couldn't do math anymore and I couldn't imagine spending my life doing it. And I just felt like there was this door that God had opened before telling me to go do this thing and I just would not do the thing because I didn't think that I could do the thing. And, uh, you know, college applications were due and so I just kind of got kicked through the door and uh, went off to college to follow a God I believed hated me to do a job I didn't want to do because I've seen how it ruined people in my family hmm. to be a part of an organization I didn't believe in um, that I didn't trust. And so, you know, things went great from then on <laughs> pretty much, pretty much smooth sailing from, for the next couple of questions until today, um, <laughs> with, uh, no interruptions, really not at all. So I'm sensing that there might have been some more transitions in there. Um, or at least could you, do you think you could put into words how you wrestled with that while at the same time pursuing 
ministry. Like, I, you know, you, you studied ancient languages in <laughs> um, undergrad. And like, why wouldn't why would you do that if you also didn't think that you were going to be a pastor one day or or like move to Greece? Like what? <laughs> move to Greece and invent a time machine. What was in say? Yeah. yeah, move to Greece and like um, <laughs> just pretend that you were like time traveling. Um, like you obviously like had this, you had something that was pulling you. Um, do you think you could have like named that at the time? Do you think that, hmm. like what was that process like for you? So I went, one of the things that I inherited from my faith, which, and this will answer a question you didn't ask yet, um, is that we cherished the Bible. Mm. We have a deep, deep reverence and love for scripture. To, perhaps to the point of idolatry, um, the Bible in many ways felt like another God. Um, and it's sort of inerrant, infallible ways that everything that it says is 100% factually accurate. So, you know, the sun actually did stop and stop in the sky for Joshua so that he could finish his little war thing. Or the sun actually went backwards for Hezekiah um, as a sign to him. And these sorts of things that we would definitely have recorded maybe, I don't know, in some Chinese historian or something during the time period would have been like, Oh my goodness, the sun stopped. Not sure what happened there. But, you know, that's another episode. And so when I went to college, I was going to study Bible, Bible and theology. But then when I went there and kind of felt like, I don't know if I trust other people's theology because I was taught to be very wary of other people, especially mm -hmm. liberals. And... So I wanted to study ancient languages because the Bible had always been handed to me as a authoritative code book. Mm -hmm. And every pastor that I'd ever had had always had sermons where they'd be like, so your Bible says this, but in the Greek, the word here means this and carries this connotation. So really what's happening in the scripture is this, you know, and they would mm. give you some explanation that is not clear from the English that they have access to. And so if I was searching for the core of this faith, I'm a scientist by heart. And so I was looking for the source code <laughs> of Christianity because all these people had this rock solid faith and it was built on something, mm. something that I couldn't access. So maybe... If I read the ancient texts in the original language, I could find it. And what I discovered was really disappointing. The Bible is written in the worst languages. <laughs> it's like when, you know, the Hebrew and the Aramaic of the, of the Old Testament, they, they have been passed down for so many generations and scribes, and they the, the Jewish people then and today really don't care so much about biblical inerrancy. It's not a concept to them that every single letter is important. That's more of a Greek concept that mm. comes later. And the New Testament is written in Koine Greek, which is like, I don't know, slang. <laughs> it's what happened when Alexander the Great conquered all the Mediterranean and taught everyone Greek and then you have Aramaic Greeks and you have Italian Greeks and you have Germanic Greeks and they all add their own little flavors to it and what you end up with is this weird fruit salad of language that's got a million problems with it and is just kind of a squishy gross language and then you've got people like John who are writing at like a first grade level and somebody like Paul who is writing at a much higher level but clearly somebody who's thinks in Aramaic, who is writing in Greek, and so is using syntax that is not even in Greek. He's inventing words on the fly, like Shakespeare. I mean, it is a mess hmm. to try to read through the New Testament in Greek. And what I learned was like, it's just a language. It's just words. Hmm. There's nothing sacred about the words themselves. 
I read a first century trashy romance novel written in Koine Greek called Kalaroi, which has got, it's got swashbuckling pirates and it's got, it's got uh, assassination attempts and sex and death and uh, kidnappings. And it's, it's great. It's the kind that would have Fabio on the cover and the grocery store. And in it, one of the kings, it says his heart was baptizo in passion, which baptizo is to baptize. And, you know, it's a word we used all the time in the Baptist church. It has special theological meaning. But in this case, it just meant that, like, he was super horny. And that's... (laughs) He's using the word that way, the way it's supposed to be used. Mm. It's just a language and it's just a book. And it was never meant to be anything more than that. It was meant to be a collection of stories written in the common language for common people with all kinds of problems to it. I mean, Jesus Mm -hmm. and them, they're using, when they're quoting the Old Testament, they're quoting the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of it that comes like two, three hundred years before Jesus. And it is so full of errors. It's it's ridiculous. Mm. If you compare the Greek translation, right, two, three hundred years before Jesus, to the most reliable Hebrew and Aramaic manuscripts we have of the Hebrew Bible, it's just wrong. I mean, they mistranslate, um, I can't think of Ruah, something or other in the Hebrew, to monokeratos in the in the Greek, and they give us unicorns. They put unicorns in the Bible because they didn't know how to translate super well. And Jesus is using this with no problem because it doesn't matter that it's because it's not the source code. It's not Mm. the source code of of our faith. And the faith has to precede it. It's just a tool. It's a it's it's a it's a living history of people's experiences with the divine and how they've interpreted that. And that that's it. There is no Bible code. There is no um special sauce in the original manuscripts it is it is it is a human document inspired by the divine perhaps but a human document and uh that to me was both really freeing and also terrifying because what it felt like is by this point is like my second year of college and i'm starting to ask really difficult questions of a faith. I'm starting to sort of admit for the first time that I don't actually believe any of the stuff I've said I've believed, <laughs> that I've lived as effectively as an atheist. And I'm starting to admit to myself that I think I am an atheist. I've just had all this social pressure to never admit it. And I'm looking at the Bible now and realizing that it, it, it's kind of like I've been exploring deep in a cave and I've had a tether tied to my waist that is back in the safe place at the beginning of the cave. And I start to pull on the tether and realize it's not connected to anything. Hmm. And this whole time I thought I've been exploring a dark cave with a way out, but I realized my way out is no longer there attached to anything. And now I'm in a dark cave and I hmm. don't know what's forward, what's back, and if I'll ever make it out alive. So not a crisis situation, but (laughs) maybe a little. If you have never had a crisis of faith, then I'm not sure you have ever taken your faith seriously. Hmm. Can you say more about that? There is um, some really helpful thinking and studies done on the development of faith. This is pretty common across almost all religions and even non-religious faith-ish, faith-y sort of things that you sort of begin your faith journey with an almost innocent awareness of God or of the divine or of something bigger than yourself, Hmm. whether that has a name or an essence or whatever, just something bigger than yourself that fills you with awe and wonder and all of that good stuff. And That usually then leads you into this stage two where you are finding a community of people to belong to and you find a people who give you validation of that, that deepest thing that you have, you have felt that you have thought this is an experience I've had. This might be true. And wow, there's people who actually affirm this. I'm not alone. And you want to just suck up as much as you can from them. At this point in my life, I'm having this sort of experience with the emerging church my freshman year of college, discover these people like Brian McLaren and even Rob Bell was kind of on that 
world at the time, these people who were kind of deconstructing the evangelical faith that I was given and were showing me a God that was a lot more gracious. So then you move into the stage three, and the stage three is when you really buy in to this tribe, to this community, to this denomination, to this church, to this teacher, to this whatever it is. And you start to give back now. You start to serve. You start to add to it. And uh, a lot of people end up here for a long, long time. This is a great place to be in your faith. (laughs) Yeah. But if you are honest there in your tribe, in whatever place you're in right there, and you keep growing, you're going to find edges to that. You're going to find yourself pushing up against harder questions for which your current situation has no answers. And the more your awareness of that grows, the more dangerous it gets. Because suddenly you realize that I don't fit here anymore. Hmm. And a lot of people at this point, they just, they, they pretend like they never saw it and they try to go back, but it's never the same. There's always going to be that lingering feeling that there's more out there. But to push through that, to push forward that, to try to break out of this thing that has given you so much life in the past, it feels terrifying on one hand, because in order to move through it, you have to kind of get rid of it. You have to Mm. leave it. And on the other hand, it also feels like a betrayal that, but there was such life here. I felt God in this place. I grew, I learned, I I became a better person here. So why can't I keep doing that here? And then you kind of have a choice at this step four to pretend and move backwards or to push into the darkness. And in the darkness, there's like a wall (laughs) in that. I mean, St. John of the Cross calls it the the dark night of the soul. Um, St. Teresa of Avila has, has one of these rooms in her interior castle. I think every mystic has talked about this at some point or another using some word that there is a place after you have pushed through the boundaries of where you were before, where you are just naked before that which is bigger than you. And you have to personally confront that thing and ask it really hard questions that you might not come back from, it feels like. But if you have, if you're faithful and you push through that, which I had good friends, I, I, I just have that kind of mind that just can't um, stop. For me, it was, it, was, it was that day, that moment when I recognized that I didn't actually believe any of this. And that was the wall for me. That was the wall for me was, was when I, I said, well, goodness gracious, I think I might be an atheist. I really would rather not tell anyone this. <laughs> I think this whole thing is, 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 is uh, this whole religion thing is just basically for thousands of years, we've been afraid to die. And so we've been telling each other stories that have made us feel better because we're so afraid to die. And maybe I'm not afraid to die. Maybe oblivion is great. I, I mean, I wasn't sad before I was born. So if it's the same as that, I'll be fine. Because I won't be. And in fact, I'm very tired. That sounds nice. <laughs> and that to me was, was when I pushed through. And on the other side, ironically, I found God. <laughs> um, it was only when I became an atheist that I found God. And it was because it was the first time in my life since I was in like 13 or 14 that I was honest with myself about that. Mm. And you know, the really sad part, there were no faith communities that would have me. Mm. Maybe, maybe there were, but I certainly didn't, didn't see any. Yeah. Nobody would advertise that, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> atheists welcome here. Because why, why would they? I mean, their, their whole identity is up there in stage two and three of, of that faith journey. I could never walk in and be like, hey, guys, guess what? I've abandoned my entire faith. Isn't that great? Now I'm ready to go look for something bigger than myself. That sort of faith community just did not exist for me. Hmm. It's kind of a big reason. And to answer a question you didn't ask, 
why I feel called to this. Because I know I'm not the only person who's gone through this this level of deconstruction. Hmm. It almost feels like demolition more than deconstruction. <laughs> um, when I when I am honest with myself that I'd never believed any of this stuff, not really anyway. Or that you stopped. I mean, it, it sounds like as a child, that was that was what the adults told you, so that's what you believed. But like you like started with one thread and that just kind of undid the whole sweater. Yeah. I, 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 I am also fascinated by these stages of faith uh, that you were talking about. And the thing that, I, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a perfectionist and, um, no, you're perfect. There's a, there's a difference. That's a good point. That's a good point. But like, I want to kind of like, I'm also a little bit competitive. So I want to get to that like finish line, right? Like <laughs> I want to make it and I want it to be, I want to have arrived, but it's like stages of faith is like cyclical, right? Like it's not something where like, you deconstruct and then you don't ever have to do it again. Like, yeah. or you deconstruct and that's it. And there's no rebuilding. Like there, there's, it's like cycles and faith is kind of this live thing rather than something that you like accomplish and put back on the shelf. Yeah. I should mention that the stage that comes after when, when you have gotten through the wall, which I should say, there is no way over the wall or around the wall or under the wall. You have to go through the wall. Once you've emerged on the other side, the stage five is a stage that is really known by its sense of gratitude, where you've seen where you've come from and you just want to share it with everyone <laughs> and you want to serve people and you want to help people. It looks a lot like stage three, but while stage three is 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 motivated by a sense of belonging in a community. Stage five is motivated by a sense of having been through hell and now wanting to guide others through it. And then if you f follow that to the next stage, the next stage is what the mystics call um, unitive love. This is a state of divine love in which you, you might almost seem detached from things hmm. because you are so wrapped up in the divine, the divine has become so intertwined with you. You become like those trees that grow around fences and hmm. you just can't separate the two anymore. And things don't phase you as much that your things are just easier. Hmm. Um, you are an embodiment of divine love, but, but like, it, that, <laughs> that sense of awe, of reverence, of discovering this purity of God then becomes stage one again. And then you dwell in that simplicity and that naivete for a while until you move into stage two where you find another community who is like this. We see this, I'm seeing this so much now with like people who grew up really strictly evangelical, deconstructed, went through this hellish phase. They came out the other side and they've got this new faith and then they discover contemplatives. And they discover the Catholic contemplatives and they're like, my goodness, have you read a Richard Rohr book? And then suddenly everyone is now a contemplative and we're all joining the Center for Action and Contemplation. And now we have our, now we're back to stage two. We now belong to a group and we're going to be a part of that group for a while now until that group and its ideology, if we keep pushing it, if mm. we keep being honest and seeking and, and, and wanting to go deeper, it will not be enough after a while. And mm. we will find ourselves back at another dark night of the soul. But this time, hopefully, since you've been through it once, it's less scary. Well, and I would That's imagine... why it's more of a downward spiral <laughs> than it is just a clock that goes in a circle. I would imagine, too, that, like, you don't lose anything. Like, you don't lose everything from stage one you don't lose everything from mm -hmm. stage two you don't lose anything from stage three like i would imagine that there are still things from your childhood faith that you hold on to um that 
you know, like I, I am really into that, like Richard Rohr con- contemplatives. Um, and I don't, I don't want to even think that I'm going to like, quote, grow beyond that or something like it's going to be a part of my my faith toolbox or what, you know, what whatever that like yes. suitcase, like you have to like let go of some things to make space for others. But like it's still the suitcase. One it's of Rob Bell's suitcase. favorite phrases to use when talking about spiritual growth is transcend and include. Hmm. And that's something that I think is really important that I have come to learn. I mean, when you first are deconstructing some kind of faith that you were handed, you want to just throw the whole thing out the window. I had an old Zanga journal that I made back in those days called Dear Church. And (laughs) that should not only place me chronologically that I was using a Zanga journal, but also in my own sophomoric Mm. deconstruction, where now I was ready to take on the establishment. I was ready to tear it down and give it what for. And uh, I recognize now that is motivated entirely by hurt feelings. There's no wisdom in that. There's no depth in that. Um, if, If I can't graciously thank the faith that was handed to me and embrace it with gratitude and see what it gave me, what made me now, what I have held on to that's been good, then I don't think I've actually deconstructed it fully. I don't think I'm done. I think I'm just reacting out of emotions at that point, which, you know, helpful. Let those emotions be the microbes in the soil that decompose and create something new. Sure. Absolutely. Just don't let that be the end. Because, you know, when I, when that first sort of cycle, I think, of that faith cycle during that dark night of the soul, what I discovered on the other side was the community of progressive Christianity, which Mm. at that point I was talking more emerging church progressive Christianity, which is, has nothing at all to do with mainline progressive Christianity that I'm a part of now, but more of the sort of red letter Christians, Tony Campolo's, um, Shane Claiborne's that came out of evangelicalism that now suddenly cares about the poor, like (laughs) that kind of, of liberal Christianity. And I loved it and it gave me such life and freedom. And it's, yeah, I brought some of that back with me the, the year before I graduated college when I was an intern at my church of origin. And I may have been a little bit, less tactful than I would be now and maybe the reason why I was essentially kicked out of the church that's a different episode um but I started to find the edges of that and Mm. the edges of that for me was that it didn't stand for anything Mm. when you are so focused and so reactionary against the exclusivism of the sort of fundamental evangelicalism, the the it's our way or the highway. When you react just to that, what you end up with is a sort of anything goes permissiveism hmm. of you know, sort of a universalism, I guess, which is fine. But then how do you how does that fuel you fighting against injustice? Because how can you hold on to that as your foundation and then say, oh, but by the way, the big banks are evil. Oh, but by the way, there is no evil. (laughs) But except for these ones that are the bad things that I know of now, there's not a whole lot to stand on in that. You, you, You have to still be able to say there are, there is right and there is wrong. I I don't think any of the prophets of the Hebrew Bible stand without there being good and evil, right and wrong. Hmm. You know, sure there are gradients, but there are still things that are not good. <laughs> and there wasn't room for that because that whole movement started as a reaction against fundamentalism such that it hadn't evolved to include what it had left. Hmm. You know, so I... So what... What do you think you still hold on to? Um, from that, I still am deeply in love with scripture. I think I don't read it literally anymore. I read it seriously. And I read it a distinction. in dialogue. 
with my historical partners who have been doing it for thousands of years, both Christian and Jewish. And I think especially learning how Jewish people think and how they read their own scriptures has helped me to further understand my own. Because even the New Testament scriptures were written by Jews. Every part of it was written by Jews. Hebrew Bible, Christian Bible, it's all Jews all the way through. And so until you can start to think that way, I'm not sure you can understand it. Hmm. Um, And so the Bible has come much more alive to me now. And I, I went from a place where everything in the Bible was literally true at face value to everything in the Bible is up for grabs. Hmm. And you can interpret however you want, <laughs> which is a fallacy in and of itself, because then the Bible can't teach you anything. Then the Bible is just Play-Doh for you to form into your own To tell you that whatever. you're doing a great job. Yeah. <laughs> to this place of challenge in between. You know, I just read this amazing article that um, uh, Will Gaffney recommended mm-hmm. on Facebook that was... Um, Oh, what is it called? Um, Canaanites, Cowboys, and Indians. (laughs) And it was about moving towards a Native American liberation theology. And it was written by this Native American man. And his critique is that in all of the liberation theologies that are sort of contextual ways of reading scripture and understanding the Christian faith that liberate people as opposed to subject people. They all seem to at least start with the book of Exodus and they imagine God as a liberating God who is on the side of the oppressed of the slaves. And he is against those who would wield power to abuse people. And God is one who takes people out of slavery and then brings people to a place. And this writer was saying All of those liberation theologies ignore the indigenous people in Canaan. Yep. And this is why a Native American uh, liberation theology is flawed from the start. Because everyone else just takes for granted that there are evil and wicked people in the way that God needs to conquer. And that's like part two. Part one is God's salvation. Part two is God's conquering of the people who are already there or the subjugation or the assimilation or the erasure of those people. And until we can come to terms with that, then it is no good to fold that in. So I need to let scripture teach me something to be uncomfortable, to read through Joshua and be like, this hurts me. And even though there's no archaeological evidence whatsoever of a widespread conquest, (laughs) even though Jericho was not even inhabited at the time of supposedly that Joshua destroyed it and killed everyone, I still have to reckon with the fact that for thousands of years, people told this story as if it were true. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I've taken that with me, a love of scripture, and I'm learning to take it seriously. Um, I've also retained my sense of right and wrong, or even that there is a right and wrong to find Hmm. and to seek, to cherish, um, that not all roads lead to truth. Hmm. If you're climbing a mountain and you're in the north face and I'm on the south face, we're both walking in different directions and we both reach the top, right? That's a wonderful analogy, but you can't go down and reach the top of a mountain. And there are people out there who are going down. And there is evil and there is wrong and there is oppression and there is there are bad things and we need to be able to name them and we need the theological backing to call them out. Mm. Um, and that is something that I have retained from being a fundamentalist. Mm. And I'm glad I have it. Because without it, we end up, and so we don't have a whole lot of time left. So I can't really answer how I stumbled into the UCC other than to say a professor of mine asked me to fill in on a Sunday for her in a church where she was the interim in a denomination I had never heard of called the United Church of Christ. I went and preached a sermon. They asked me to apply for the job. I said yes, because it felt right. And that is a thing that I do sometimes is I do things against my better judgment because they felt right in the moment. And 
usually when I do that, it turns out well. Um, you might be a nine on the Enneagram if you listen to your gut. Ooh, there's another episode for another day or another yeah. nine episodes, 10 episodes if we do an overview. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how would you, I think, so my answer to uh, what brought you to the UCC will be a little bit more nuanced and we'll probably expand on what you just said um, because we did it together. But um, how would you describe your faith right now? I feel fairly comfortable in my faith. I don't feel super comfortable in my religion. So, Can you say more? Yes. If religion is the scaffolding, that if religion is the well that accesses the groundwater, if it is the thing that we build in order to unite us around a common belief system or family system or whatever it is, I feel these days that I am a bit too dogmatic, like I believe in things and um, personally devotionally connected to God like that. I think religion, spirituality is an essentially a lived experience um, that one needs to experience. I'm a bit mystical in that way um, to really fit within even like the United Church of Christ, where I have, <laughs> there have been, the, we we are sort of in that place as a denomination. We're like the most justice the most progressive denomination out there, but we don't know how to even say the word Jesus because we're afraid of offending someone about mm. it, right? Yeah. Like that's where we are. Um, but at the same time, I'm way too progressive to be an evangelical anymore. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they want nothing to do with this commie in here that I'm not a communist, but that's what they would call me. They would mm -hmm. call me a godless heathen communist. I all kinds of other things. I've been called a heretic more times than I can count um, for doing things like espousing the views that early church fathers wrote about. But that's a different episode for another day when we'll talk about Someone like Origin. So I would call my own current faith a scientifically minded Christian mystic. I believe in science. And by that, I don't mean a body of facts. I mean, I believe that the scientific method is the best method that we have developed to understand the natural world. Hmm. I did an interview earlier today with a paleontologist for my Down the Wormhole podcast, which is about science and religion, <laughs> in which she said, for her, being a scientist means always trying to be wrong. So she was the first person in 2005 to put to dissolve a dinosaur fossil in acid, which is just ridiculous that you would do something <laughs> to something 68 million years old to dissolve it. But what she discovered was what looked like soft tissue and red blood cells in a fossilized bone, which should be impossible, should not have happened. And so she said, her first response is, oh my gosh, that looks like a soft tissue. That looks like a blood cell. But I need to prove that it's not. Because if I come at it and I say, this is what I want to prove, I'll find ways of reading my interpretation into it. Hmm. So I need to find how to disprove this. I need to find out what this is not. In Christianity, we call this the via negativa, the the, the negative way of doing faith. The uh, um, all the things that God is not, all of the things that we are unlearning, that we are forgetting, that we are um, unbecoming. Hmm. There's a kind of in in Christian mysticism. There's this understanding that so much of who we are is something we have placed on top of our true selves. Hmm our personalities, um, our, our defense mechanisms in some way, and that a part of being made more perfect in God is unknowing those things, of stripping them away. And 
So I think the scientific method and the scientific worldview, this worldview where you want to be wrong, where you hold your beliefs loosely, where you are constantly seeking and looking for better questions, not better answers, I think it informs a sort of really healthy spirituality. And so I find, I find that my view of God shifts with my view of scripture, my view of the natural world, my interactions with other people. Um, I always want to change. I want to be different. I don't want to be the same Christian in, in 10 years that I am today. I hope that I will be different. Hmm. I And I hope that when I look back at myself then, I will not say that I am better now than I was then. Yeah. I hope that I will say I'm better adapted. I am different. I have... That's the thing about evolution is it's ne it's never better. It's just better adapted to the moment. Hmm. Um, and that I am freer in, in, in many ways. And so, yes, I will call myself a scientifically minded Christian mystic. And I feel very comfortable in that identification. I just don't have a denomination that is also that. <laughs> and that's fine. Um, I have my own tribe of people. I mean, in the best of the UCC world, there's space for that. Yes. Right. Especially within the UCC Science and Technology Network, that mm. of which I am one of the organizers. I don't know. We don't have any funding, so we don't really have any <laughs> positions. <laughs> so I would guess that you just kind of answered the question, why pastor a new church? Um, because you're trying to create a space for people to be a part while not necessarily checking off boxes or something. But I wonder if you could maybe say that more eloquently. Yeah. I kind of made this deal with the divine um, years ago when I felt like I could do this pastor thing, but I don't want to because I can't stay a Christian for more than 10 minutes at a time. And I really felt this this strong voice that said, I don't want you to be that Christian. We have enough of those leaders. I want you to be the uh, pastor for the doubter, for the person, the, the pastor you didn't have, essentially. And I agreed to that. And uh, I, I found a lot of joy in that work over my time pastoring a, a more traditional church. But the sorts of people, it's it, a traditional church is kind of self-selecting. You have to already feel comfortable in a church to join a traditional church. Hmm. And so a lot of the people who are the doubters, who are the outcasts, they're never going to show up. And so like my people, the people like me that I love and that I want to be with, the people who say like, I don't really have a faith or I don't know, I've kind of thrown the whole thing out. Like, I want to be with you. <laughs> you are where the like the fertile ground of of the new mysteries are. Um, hmm. And so that space Fertile ground didn't... of new mysteries. I like that. Oh, that'll be my first book. Yeah. Fertile ground of new mysteries. So like that place didn't quite exist. Hmm. And so I wanted to create that ground. There's also this, uh, this convergence that I'm seeing. This is something my friend Eric Elness has written a lot about, where a lot of people are leaving evangelical settings because they love the the programs, they love the the sort of personal relationship with Jesus that you get from that, the the relationality of religion, the the the, the tactile, the feelings, the emotions that come from this sort of very American Christianity. But they're really getting sick and tired of getting connected to a church and then five years later realizing that their gay brother's not welcome. Mm. or that every Muslim's going to hell or, you know, this, that, or the other, this sort of very closed theologies. And then on the other hand, you've got all of these people who are in these really liberal progressive churches who really love the fact that, well, my church was out there marching in a Black Lives Matter protest. My church was out there um, fighting for fair funding, fighting for the environment. We're doing all these great justice -y things, but... I don't know the last time we talked about Jesus <laughs> and I feel spiritually dead here hmm. that we're really just going through the rites and the traditions and fighting about the color of the carpet. And none of this is actually affecting my soul in any real way. 
Hmm. And so they're kind of leaving. And the, the two of these groups are kind of commingling, but they're not really finding what they're looking for in either other setting. Hmm. And so what they're looking for is a church community or a church tradition even that is focused on the here and now, on the matters of justice that matter to people right now. Hmm. They're looking for a uh, a personal devotional connection to God that is grounded in scripture and in in reality and in experience that informs action in the here and now. They're mm-hmm. looking for worship music that they can that that touches their soul and that they can understand that's <laughs> in a language they get. Um and the kind of small interpersonality and and uh yeah a sort of convergence of the best of both a way of um how does it that rob bell put it what did i say earlier of transcending and including of moving on to something else while taking the best of what you had come from and i feel a hunger for that Hmm. and anytime i hear somebody or even even when I when I give that positive vision, there's always somebody who's going, oh, yes, those are the words. That's the thing. That's what my heart is yearning for. Hmm. This sort of convergence of Christian traditions. You know, we've been fighting since the 30s <laughs> with these two, you know, conservative and liberal mainline um, and evangelical movements. We've been fighting for almost 100 years and it is only now that people are leaving the church in droves and going nowhere. Are we realizing that both camps have strayed and that there's something else that we can do, something else that is good and fruitful? Um, it just has to be grounded in honesty and in a true connection to the Spirit. So I think I've answered all of the questions. Mm-hmm. Any, any final thoughts? before we sign off. Any final thoughts? Well, I think I have accidentally set up about 30 new episodes that we're going to have to talk about heaven and hell and universality and the Enneagram and perhaps spiritual beings and mysticism and science. And um, I'm already buzzing with excitement about that spreadsheet. I'm going to have to update after this. (laughs) I'm most excited about the Enneagram. But. <laughs> yes, yes. And um, not only because the Enneagram is really helpful, and as, as the mathematician George Box said, that um, all models are wrong, but some are useful. <laughs> I found the Enneagram to be the most useful personality uh, system that I have ever encountered, partially because it acknowledges that personality is a defense mechanism that we create when we're young in order to defend against people penetrating our our um, true self, which I I feel I feel in my gut, and I feel it in my gut because I'm a nine, mm-hmm. I think. But that's another episode for another day. We want to thank. Everyone who makes these, this podcast possible, our patrons over at Patreon who uh, keep the lights on this podcast on, you can join them over there as well if you'd like. Um, feel free, please um, rate and and review the podcast wherever it is that you listen. That is helpful. It doesn't really boost us in the rankings, but if, if somebody is looking at a new podcast and it's got a bunch of positive ratings, they're more, more likely to give it a try. So that would be wonderful. Also, if you like what you hear and this podcast is important to you, please just tell one person. Um, podcasts, even professional podcasts, still to this day, best spread through word of mouth, not through advertising or anything like that. So tell a friend, post on social media, whatever you can do. Everything, Every little bit will help. Thanks for listening. Yes. Until next time when we get to hear all about Nicole. Yep. Bye.